Episode 46, Who Can Explain the Fear? Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. In this episode, I'll be reading from a recent uh, blog post of mine at jackpelham.com and then expounding on it. We'll get into a large portion of Romans 8, which is frequently quoted, but poorly understood and poorly executed, in my opinion. I think this is a very serious topic, and I've uh, rarely heard any Christians even try to explain it. Uh, And when they do, it's generally a really sloppy explanation. So... I'm going to pose a big question here. Uh, basically, who can explain the fear that is rampant among Christian fellowships? That is the the character of fear that typifies the people. And um, all this is based, of course, on Romans 8.15. And so let me just get into this. I'll, I'll be reading this blog post and then commenting as I can't help it. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to go over a big chunk of Romans 8 in context. So, I'm starting with Romans 8, uh, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And let me just stop right here and say, if you should hear voices in the background, my office is right next to a meeting room for a uh, local support group, and so I can hear them through the wall sometime. I have not yet insulated that better uh, to protect myself from them, and they don't seem to want to protect themselves from me, so they don't insulate their side either. Uh, But we're going to work on that soon. Anyway, uh, what's Paul talking about here? Well, that's the question. Uh, However, we get this intriguing line, uh, some you know variations in the translations, but this idea of a, a, a spirit of slavery or uh, a spirit of fear or a spirit that should cause us to fall back into fear, something like this. There's this idea that, hey, you came out of the world, which is loaded with fear, but you're not supposed to be like that, right? And so, uh, and this is commonly expressed in churches of all flavors, all camps. You hear this idea uh, and I don't hear many people arguing about it saying, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> no, it means we should be filled with fear. I never hear anything like that. So I think this is a fairly well agreed upon that Christians are not supposed to walk around uh, scaredy cats. And yet uh, a lot of them do. 
So I'm going to just go on with my conversation here, and uh, we'll see where it leads. Why do so many Christians today live in fear? Who can explain that? Popular belief says that every Christian, upon coming to Jesus, receives the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the verse above seems adamant that the Holy Spirit used to have some sort of transforming effect on those in whom he lived. It seems that it transformed people from their former slavery to a life of fear into the freedom of a life of confidence as the to-be-adopted children of God. And I'll just put in here, there is adoption language in the passage, and you'll see that it's already but not yet language. In one passage, uh, in one part of it, it reads past tense, that, you know, uh, like you've received the spirit of adoption and, and so forth, like it's already done. However, uh, it does also say explicitly they were looking forward to the adoption. So we have to be a little bit careful when we get to that. Uh, anyway, so they've got this. Um, these people were transformed out of this life of fear while they were still alive as Christians. This was going on here. They weren't supposed to be falling back into it, but overcoming it. Uh, so going on. Yet when we look around at Christian fellowships today, do we not see them in the same fears that are common among the unchurched? I don't know about you, but where I've lived, I've seen fears like these among believers. So here's a long list, bullet list. Uh, emotional insecurity. Fear of pain, whether emotional or physical. Fear of conflict. Fear of aging and death. Fear of being rejected by others. Fear of failure, fear of public speaking and singing in public. And by the way, I think uh, surveys are pretty consistent that the most uh, commonly self-reported fear is fear of public speaking, which is very interesting. And having taught public speaking for some time, I've uh, really quite enjoyed observing that in action and seeing what most people tend to be like. Uh, and fortunately, not everybody's like that, but a lot of people are. Okay, going on. Uh, fear of taking a stand on moral issues. Fear of telling the truth. Fear of finding out the truth, on certain matters at least. Fear of standing out. Fear of change. Fear of being corrected. Fear of confessing their sins. Fear of digging into the Bible and hashing out doctrines. Fear of overcoming bad personal habits, fear of work, fear of discomfort, whether it's emotional or physical. I suppose we could go on and on about things like this, but I trust that these are enough to paint the general picture of what I'm talking about. I think that our culture is awash in such fears, and that most people are indeed enslaved to such things to some extent, uh, to some bothersome extent to some ungodly extent, and to some counterproductive, counter-maturation, counter-growth extent. They are trapped in it. Uh, and I've been particularly paying attention, as I've been teaching for a few years, as well as having participated in countless Bible-related discussions. As I, uh, and I direct a mixed chorus, which serves as a fine example, a practical example, of what I'm talking about. In my chorus, many who like to sing participate, but at least half of them are considerably hampered by fear and are not emotionally free to sing out. 
that is to make full use of the voices God gave them, to sing robustly and with full resonance, full sound, full volume, uh, unreservedly, just, you know, let it rip, uh, even though they are regularly in the company of several other singers who have long since overcome such fears and sing out regularly. So what gives? And I've seen that this slavery can go on for years. And the outstanding, that, that is the unafraid people among them, don't generally seem to rub off on the scared ones. The scared ones generally stay scared and will stay that way for years. To their credit, they do dare to participate. So I'm not taking that away from them. I'm so not critical of that. They are actually, knowing they're scaredy cats, they still volunteer to be part of a singing group. Okay, yay, that's very, very good. Uh, but to their loss, they do nothing to learn to do what the better singers are doing. Very few will dare to seek out a help so that they can level up on their singing. And that's a beautiful thing to see when it happens, when someone recognizes they're lacking that spirit of excellence uh, and of overcoming and of courage, or when they're lacking the skills, the know-how, uh, so they go out in search of attaining it. That's fantastic to see that. It's great to work with a student who's advancing every week, every month, getting better and better and better, overcoming whatever they didn't know how to do, overcoming whatever they were afraid to do. Uh, this is fantastic. But sadly, this is very rare. Indeed, you can challenge the whole group weekly to overcome their fears, and almost never will any scared individual reach out for help. They know or should know that they're not really changing, but they're just so paralyzed that they're not going to try anything new. They are enslaved by it. And uh, let me talk about this right here. They, it's not that they disagree. They don't say, oh, no, I disagree. It would not be better if we all sang out. No. <laughs> they don't have some philosophical difference in the state of the art of choral singing. They don't have a different flavor in mind. No. Uh, they're fine with that, but their idea of singing out might be, yes, I added an extra one-tenth percent to my volume, and yay me, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm so reminded of that line. I'm sure I've said it here before. Uh, I see that I have failed to impress upon you the greatness of the cause which I represent. And uh, it takes forever. There is like a veil over their eyes or their minds when it comes to this. They are not seeing straight. They have no idea how far they are from really going fully after it, uh, like uh, other singers do, even singers in our own group. So <laughs> this is very difficult, very frustrating. Uh, it's it's worth having the people, don't, don't get me wrong. But holy cow, you know, if we have 25 people, uh, if they were all singing out well, it would probably sound like we had about 40 people. And I know that. So it's particularly frustrating for me because I know better. Uh, but uh, they don't, uh, not all of them. And uh, so it's quite a hampered group. And from my perspective, oh boy. Okay, well, we're having fun and, you know, it sounds pretty good, but it really could get so much better. And this is where I'm going about the churches. 
Yeah, there may be lots of great things going on at your church, but wow, could it get better. And so, um, anyway, let me go on with my post. Uh, And this doesn't just happen in Chorus. It happens in Pizza Hut. The one stellar server who has a great time serving, whose customers love her dearly, she stands out like a star against the dull backdrop of how the other servers get along with their customers. She has more return customers. She gets better tips. She has more fun. She's a happier person. But do the dull ones there ever learn from this? Do they say, wow, I want to be like Lily? Nope. They are stuck. They are trapped. They are enslaved in being as they are. It would seem nearly miraculous to find any of them deciding to break free, deciding to be like Lily, and to learn even to go ask, hey, how are you so friendly with people? Or what am I missing? Or what would it take for me to be like you? They don't, um, they don't think that way. And I'm telling you, if you don't have people in your life that you want to be like in various ways where you can say, look, I want to be like you in this, you're really missing out because, uh, I think you can get lots and lots of help from exemplary people like that. Even if it's just in one area, you know, I've got uh, one student that I learn from about health and fitness, um, well, the student learns uh, about music from me. It's sort of a, a back and forth thing, and it is fantastically fruitful. And so, you know, nobody's great at everything. And that's fine. Uh, but we should be able to learn from other people. And yet at the Pizza Hut uh, that I remember, this is years ago where, where we noticed this, um, the other servers, the dull ones, were still like that years later, even after the first lady had... Uh, had resigned and moved on to other things, bigger, better things, working in her uh, professional field. And so (laughs) she's still shining like a star and they're still just uh, very dull and um, never figured this out. So, uh, so anyway, I said it would seem nearly miraculous to find any of them deciding to break free. And is this really a miracle if somebody does Well, no, it would seem that way because it's so rare to see somebody who's really made a big change in their thinking, in their disposition, in their habitual mood and affect, uh, in the way they come across and the way they view life. Uh, There are just not many people who are growing, changing, overcoming on purpose. So what's up with that? Because the same thing is going on in millions of churches every week. And I want you to know, I'm not talking about bad people here. I've seen this in people who have lots to love. I see it in people who are very smart, who have noteworthy accomplishments in this life, who are very kind and fun to be around and so forth. People who have good careers, people who have uh, good families, who are good parents in so many ways. Uh, So it's not like I'm talking about people who are menaces to society, but they are not going to overcome their fears. There's no track record of progress, or if there is, it is so slow as to defy observation, except by the most patient and meticulous accountant, that is, except in the tiniest of degrees, 
So what is going on here? To Paul, it seemed like a no-brainer that the indwelling Holy Spirit was not like the spirit of fear they had had, uh, that had had the world under its control. How is it now that these same common human fears seem to have wide-scale control over believers today? There's our question. And I'm going to keep repeating that question because it needs to be answered. Where is the spirit of daring and of overcoming, of learning, of pushing oneself, of self-improvement and growth and maturation and discovery? Where's the spirit of emulating Jesus and God? Of the courageous following of Jesus' example and the examples of his apostles? Why does that forward-moving philosophy not typify today's Christian fellowships? That's the question. The non-thinker may never stumble across such a question. But as the analytical sort, it's a question I don't think I can morally afford to ignore. To me, it's a question that demands an answer. But alas, only a courageous people would have the heart to get into this because we can sense from the beginning that the answer to such a question might indeed be troubling, a troubling one. So why not just sweep it under the rug for now and hope for better times ahead without having to stop and find out the answer? And, of course, that's not me saying that seriously. That's me mimicking the way that people think. I think we are in a serious crisis. I think that the difference between our modern Christian culture and the Christian culture that was enjoyed by those congregations in the first century is a huge difference. And I don't think we can afford to ignore it. We do ignore it, but we can't afford to. This is not going well. The uh, payoff of the strategy of ignoring it is not working out well for us. I think that a sad state of emergency exists today given how much different we are from what they seem to have been like, or at least when we are so busy believing that we live in the same general spiritual context as them, in the same general circumstances and conditions. If the times haven't changed, then why aren't we so courageous as they were? Something is wrong. I have some ideas about how best to answer this question, but they're still in a time of testing, as are so many of the ideas I have in trying to understand the Bible. And they're not quite ready to be formally published. But I'm writing this post uh, not to insist on the answers. I'm writing it to insist on the question. I believe we have a moral obligation to ask the question and to go after an answer, a good and honest and rational and responsible answer. Sadly, though, while a lot of Christians have opportunity to stumble across this question in the natural business of living out the faith they have, I have seen very few rolling up their sleeves in search for an answer. It's much easier for them to default to the popular meme culture, to our hearsay culture that readily provides mindless answers of various kinds that they will never stop to vet. Indeed, the reason for adopting one of those answers is not to get at the truth of the matter, because they will never do the work of confirming whether the answers are true or not, 
Rather, they latch onto the hearsay in order to escape having to deal with the truth by pretending to have a true answer already. Ironically, most are afraid to vet such notions for fear that they might prove to be false. And I put the word afraid in boldface. Why? Well, we're talking about not receiving a spirit of fear, of slavery. Do you get that? So if we're not courageous, if we're not inspired by the spirit of courage and boldness, and so we don't go after understanding what time it is and what's going on and what's uh, sucking the life out of the churches, then we're going to stay as we are, right? So going on. And this is just another example of us living as slaves to fear when that does not seem to have been how the first century Christians lived. So you can put yourself to the test here today to see whether you are a slave to fear or not. You could, for example, share this article on social media and spread the question around, inviting discussion of this crucial topic. And if you think that's a good idea, pay attention to whatever happens in your mind between thinking it's a good idea and actually taking the steps to get it shared. And what I was going after there is how so many good intentions never make it to publication. They never make it to press. They never make it to airtime. They never get carried out. Going on, and I'm not doing this as some manner of marketing ploy. My website is not monetized, and I'm lucky to have more than 10 visits on any particular day. And this is me talking about my blog. Or rather, I suggest this as a practical self-test of your own spirit of courage. Let's talk about it, Christians. And this is where I ended my article. This is published, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And so far I've had zero responses. Not one question, not one like button on Facebook, nothing. And this, of course, is why I wrote the article, because I know it is uh, way under-addressed, and is very important, and yet there is no response. The response is not to respond. Does that make sense? This, this is the way the churches deal with this. Crickets. Nothing. <laughs> and so it's funny. Romans 8 is one of the most popular chapters in the Bible, especially verse 28, and we'll get to that. In a bit, uh, and I think it's quite misunderstood, by the way. Uh, however, uh, so we talk about this a lot, and yet we're so terribly poor at it, uh, generally speaking. So what is up with this? So uh, from here forward, I want to dig into Romans 8 and just extemporize some on the theme. These are things I've been thinking about and studying for years. And I have not taken the time to write this out formally. So, hey, I'm just winging it. I hope this is useful. So I go on. That's how my blog article ended. And now let's dig into Romans 8 uh, some more because I think that it gets a lot of lip service in the churches, but little implementation. Just like with a shy singer in a chorus who will have zero objections to the notion that it sounds better if singers will sing out, but who will simply not sing out herself, 
A great many Christians regularly hear about courage and overcoming and growing and yet have little courage and little growth and hardly ever overcome anything. They're living split lives, their own inward intents and acknowledgments versus their long-term failure to become like Jesus. The inside versus the outside. The intentions versus the actual practical track record. And it's very easy to fool ourselves into thinking we are what we intend rather than we are what we do. We are our habitual habits um, versus we are our best view of ourselves, our best intentions. Yes, that's what we get credit for, something like that, right? So let's dig into Romans 8. And I want to go back to um, verse 26. Uh, we start in verse 15, of course. Uh, but in verse 26, it starts talking about the, the help they were getting from the Spirit. And let me say this up front. There is a lot of agreement about the Spirit amongst Christianity, but there is a lot of disagreement about it, too. Uh, I do not understand it well enough to consider myself qualified to just go teaching about the Spirit. Uh, there's a few things here in this passage. We'll talk about them. Maybe you'll see some of why I am a little uncertain as to what it all was about and or is about. Uh, but anyway, let's just dive in. Uh, Romans 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Okay, so we see that they had weakness. Well, we do too. All right. And yet, you see, they were getting help from the Spirit in some way. Do we know exactly what way? Well, we know some about it. Uh, do we know everything? Did one of the Bible writers sit down to write a lengthy treatise on the whole thing? No. So this is quite a challenge for us because we cannot go one-stop shopping and find a chapter that explains it all. So going on in verse 26, second half, we do not know what we ought to, to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Okay, so they were getting help with an intermediary between them and God. The Spirit was doing this. That's very interesting. How exactly did that work? Of course, some people think it's still going on. Other people uh, think it's not going on. Uh, some people think the Spirit was never an actual being, but was like the philosophy of God, you know, the Word of God, the teachings, the precepts, the principles, the paradigms and all this. I sort of get that. Uh, and yet there are passages like this. How do principles intercede for us through wordless groans? This seems quite an active thing. So it's very hard for me to go to that camp that says, no, there was never any actual being like people were, were you know, in, indwelt, possessed of uh, the godly spirit. Uh, that's there are passages that make that hard to swallow, although I get it in some other ways. So this is where I'm still uh, trying to work this out. And then going on, verse 27, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So again, we have some sort of intercessory role. Okay, and so did people need help? with uh, God being interceded with on their behalf? Well, apparently so, because that's the help they were getting. Now, is this still going on today? Uh, that's a fantastic question. Uh, let's go on. 
Here's the big one. Here's the big, the verse everybody's waiting for. Verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And let me stop right there. When was this conforming to the image of his son supposed to happen? That's a really important question. Some people will think that it's all later. That's like, that's when we get to heaven. Then we'll be uh, conformed to the image. We'll be made into the very thing that we were made like from. You know, he created the male and female in the image of God. He created them. Okay, so we were created this way. And yet uh, we're supposed, or they at least, uh, back then, verse 29 in the first century, uh, they were predestined to be conformed to that image. So not only in principle you're created this way, but you're actually supposed to become like it. And so my question is, when is that supposed to happen? Is this for now or is this for later? How would they have thought about this in the first century? If you'd raise your hand and said, excuse me, Paul, uh, do you mean that one day, one glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away, and then I will be conformed to the image of his son? Or am I supposed to be conformed now? Is this supposed to be happening now? And then, of course, if it's supposed to be happening now, is it supposed to be done in flash? Or is it a thing that takes time? Well, I can tell you, I think it was supposed to happen right away and to be an ongoing process that had a real track record that you could see, yes, this person is growing, becoming more and more like Jesus all the time. That's what I think it was supposed to be. I think it would have been very irresponsible to put this off, kick the can down the road of futurism and say, no, this is all supposed to happen later. Uh, I don't have to grow now. I'll grow later. It's guaranteed. I don't think that's the right way to go about this. And yet there are some who look at it that way, even if they would not formally explain this verse that way. <laughs> In other words, they might say, oh, yeah, sure, we're supposed to be changing and growing all the time. But then are they actually changing and growing all the time? No. Right? So you'd see a difference between our own inward intents and acknowledgments versus our actual life habit. Okay. So anyway, uh, verse 27, he searches our hearts and minds, uh, and the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Okay, so there's something like that that was going on. Verse 28, we know that all things he works together for the good of those who love him. Hmm, this one's really tricky. Because one person's going to look at the simplistic and say, oh, look, everything's for my good. Well, there's different ways to take that. For instance, if you're a Christian being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, is this for your good? Well, the one way you could say uh, it is uh, that this Christian got the chance to lay it all on the line and to die uh, on behalf of God, on behalf of the faith, and to die faithful and to not renounce Christ, uh, even though being, you know, uh, tempted to do so, being coerced to do so. So you could say that's good. Uh, 
Another person would look at this and say, no, that's not good. That makes no sense. So uh, therefore, God must not exist, or this is all a lie, or this is stupid, or this is a bad translation, or something like that. Okay? Uh, but And I have something to say about this, but I want to go on and read the next two verses. Uh, so repeating this one, we know in all things that God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And my question, how did you know that, Paul? And we'll come back to that. But he goes on, verse 29. For those who God foreknew, that is, those who God knew before, that he knew aforetimes, that he knew before now, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Okay, wait a minute. Firstborn? Why are we talking about that? Because you know what that's talking about is his resurrection from the dead. And he was the firstborn among many. Because it says in Matthew 27, 51 through 53, that uh, when he died, there was earthquakes, the rocks split, and the bodies of many holy people were raised to life, uh, coming out of the tombs after Jesus himself was resurrected. And they went into the city, that is Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. So... This makes Jesus like uh, sort of semi-literally the firstborn from Sheol and Hades among many brothers and sisters who were also born out of Sheol and Hades. And there's all kinds of Old Testament prophecy about this. Uh, so this is, I'm not just making this up. Okay, so suddenly when he's talking about those who are predestined to be conformed uh, it's also at the same time bringing up this thing about him being the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Uh, and then the next verse, verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And this is all in the past tense. This would appear at first blush to be about something that had already happened when Paul wrote this. Now, Paul may have in mind that his audience is also going to uh, live out a life according to God's purpose and, and be uh, predestined and called and justified and glorified and such. But at this moment, he seems to be writing about those people who were raised from the dead with Jesus himself on that day when Jesus rose. And so I asked a question about verse 28. This is where Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I asked the question, How do you know that, Paul? And I think, well, gee, if you go back and look at those who were raised to life, and came alive and went into the city of Jerusalem. And this is many holy people. And I'm sure I've mentioned it before on this podcast. I believe this was all the holy people from Sheol. This is all the ones that God did not reject. This is all the ones he found faithful. And so uh, he had predestined them for this raising again. And he called them. And I wonder whether this is not even calling them out of the grave. Need to look into that some more. But he justified them 
and glorified them. To be glorified, that can mean different things, but generally you're you're leveling up, you're being given this great honor, or you're being having something great bestowed upon you, something like this. Some will talk about having a glorified body to go to heaven. You know, it's all in this vein of they were, they definitely, they leveled up somehow. Well, would it be leveling up to go from living in uh, Sheol for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years to being back in your reconstituted living human body, the body raised from the dead and your spirit put back in the body? Would that be leveling up? I would think so. And so I think this is Paul saying, uh, yeah, we know that it works out for people who love God because look, <laughs> look at these people who are walking, living, breathing. Now, a lot of people will tell you that, uh, the, first of all, a great many Christians don't know anything about this mass resurrection in Matthew 28 or 27, 51 through 53. They know nothing about it. They skip right over it. It's never read in church. Preachers don't know what to make of it, so they just skip it. Or they read it, uh, maybe even worse, they read it and then refuse to comment on it. They just go on and comment about something else. Or they have to stop and tell you, well, we think that these people raised with Jesus in Acts 1 verse 8 when Jesus went up. Okay, well, it doesn't say that. Uh, so why do you think that? What are all the other alternatives? Have you explored those? Oh, yes, actually, uh, I don't believe that. I believe that they uh, all died again. Oh, okay then. What do you make of the passage in uh, Hebrews that says it is appointed for man to die but once and then the judgment? Because I think you got a problem if you have these people dying twice. That's a problem. So then what? <laughs> How do you explain it, right? And so there's a lot of this sort of shooting from the hip work that goes on. Uh, however, I think that these people... Uh, he went and got them out of Sheol, and he led them. Uh, he set the captives free. He let the prisoners out. They had been living in uh, the underworld, and he got them out. And so this is how Paul says, hey, we know it works out good for people that love God because these people loved God, and look, he let them out of Sheol. Now, is that a big deal? Oh, absolutely. This is one of the biggest deals in all of Scripture. And so Paul isn't just saying this like moderns say this. Oh, yeah, we, we think it's good, you know, that uh, people love God. And he works out like every little thing in their life, even that flat tire. Boy, he works that out for their good. In fact, he planned it to teach them patience or so that they could meet the tow truck guy and invite him to church, right? You see how people sort of run with this and, and work all this out. But no. I'm pretty sure this is Paul talking about people that had already been predestined uh, to come back to life and who had been brought back to life. And so he goes on to verse 31. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, God was for these people that raised from the dead. Uh, who stopped them from being raised? Uh, nobody. Okay, well, if God's for us, who can be against us? That is the living people of Paul's day, the living believers. Verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Interesting that he didn't mention those others who raised with Jesus also being at the right hand of God. Because I think he's already talking about those people. He brought them up as the Jesus being the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Okay. So, uh, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, this is the philosophy of Paul. And I believe this is the philosophy of Jesus Christ. Who taught it to Paul? This is not an apology. This is not Paul saying, well, you know, brothers and sisters, just do your best and, you know, just try to stay faithful somehow. You got to just hold on to that little nugget of, I believe Jesus is my personal Savior and that he died for me. And then you're going to be fine, even if your life sucks, even if you're scared of your shadow even if you can't tell the truth to anybody, you can't help anybody because you're afraid you might hurt their feelings, even if you're afraid to have conflict with people who do you wrong, even if you're terrified to go ask your question for the, from the preacher uh, because you think he might take it as disrespectful or take it as a challenge when it's not, you know. He's not making excuses for them. That bar is set really high. He's saying, look, nothing is going to separate you from the love of God if you are one of these people who loves God and is called according to his purpose. It worked for these people. They went, they died. They went to Sheol and stayed there a long, long, long time. Uh, a lot of them. Some of them had been there only a very, very short time. But he got them out. So what in the world are you scared about? These Christians were facing an imminent persecution uh, that was going to escalate, and it was going to be very bad, even to death. Uh, many of them, not all. Some would be in prison, um, and uh, death and you know famine and all, all kinds of persecutions and things like that. However, that had already happened to people before. And so here's Paul saying, look, those people before, they're walking around as a cloud of witnesses. And of course, I'm referring to Hebrews 12, verse 1, because I believe, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but nobody's ever shown me that. I believe those people stayed living in the land and were part of quite a big deal in the first century. So you got David and Abraham and Moses and all that living in the land. And yeah, I know that that's freaky. I know people are like, what? It doesn't say that. No, 
but it says enough to make us conclude that this must be what it was talking about if you try to study the whole thing. And people who don't like that, they don't like the idea of a Bible that doesn't give them every little detail and spell it out for you, wrap it up in a neat little package. Well, you're, what are you going to do? Oh, well, you're going to be tempted to just invent some shortcut to get out of here. Some trump card, like you'll say, well, yeah, that's why I believe that they ascended with Jesus in Acts 1. And I can turn the tables on you and say, wait a minute, it doesn't say that. <laughs> Show me where it says that. I can bang the desk, right? Okay, and you got to admit, that's a big weakness in your argument. I'm not saying that uh, proves that you're wrong. I'm saying the Bible doesn't say everything. There are things that can be figured out that are not explicitly stated in the Bible. And anytime we try to figure something out, we can either do a good job of it or a poor job of it. We can admit when things are inconclusive. I will admit to you it's inconclusive what happens to these people. But what I don't do is the cheating that just assumes, oh, well, it must be the easiest, simplest to explain thing that happened, that, yeah, they, they went up with Jesus. Or, uh, number two, they died again. Minus like, mm, no, I think they stayed around. I think he took them up later. And there's reasons for that, and it's quite a long study, not one for today. But Paul is talking about people who've already went through the persecutions, already went through the suffering, and it turned out good for them. That's how we know. Back in verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Uh, yeah, we know this because, look, here are people who were like that, and it worked out good for them, and they're walking around as a cloud of witnesses uh, to this day as of the writing of Hebrews 12.1. And yes, I know that's an atypical view, and it's controversial. And my thing is, fine, if I'm wrong, could you please demonstrate that for me? Not just tell me you're wrong, but show me how, how it could not be that way. Please disprove that for me. And again, you're talking to the guy that writes an article like this one, and nobody responds to it in a few weeks. You see, <laughs> so I'm already quite familiar with the cricket song, chirp, 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 chirp. And that's sort of the state of the culture of Christianity today. Very few will engage in the actual details. And so Paul says, look, nothing is going to separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, and then he goes on as it's written. Of course, he's quoting from the prophets here. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So they had this certain surrender about them. This idea, yeah, if, if this is how it is, it's how it is. If we die, we die. And that's part of it. Now, I'm not sure that all of us today uh, really embrace that spirit. But look, I'm not going to get out of this life alive. I'm going to die, whether it's from old age or perhaps from persecution, although persecution is very rare, especially in churches who are trying so hard to blend in with the world and be one of them rather than to be like Jesus. And again, I'm getting back to this whole fear thing. So uh, Paul goes on after this in verse 37, and he wraps it up here uh, for this chapter, like he wrote the chapter divisions, which he did not, but he goes on. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither die, uh, death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, and that's a reference to these beings, uh, nor neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the question, why then are you scared? If you cannot be separated by some outward thing from the love of God, then what do you have to lose? If you're going to be invited into his eternal home to spend the rest of eternity with him after you die here, really, what do you have to lose? Well, that's a certain philosophy that you can't have if you don't really believe you're going to heaven and really understand what that's about and what that means and how even like after a year in heaven, what are you going to think your life here was all about? Because it's going to seem like distant past, even just a year into eternity. You're going to understand so many things that you don't understand now, things you never even thought of. And yes, things that are contrary to what you thought they'd be like. We're going to be surprised a lot in heaven. So if nothing can separate you from this love of God, as long as you're staying in it, how does it say again in verse 28, uh, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So are you living according to God's purpose? You're loving God. Okay. Nothing can separate you. So then, let's do it. Let's overcome. Let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's become like Jesus in every way. Let's overcome whatever. Let's tackle if we're fat. Let's go after that. If we're unfit, let's go after that. If we're impatient, okay. If we're unloving, I'll share this. Uh, when you're trying to run an organization like a chorus or my school that we uh, recently closed down, and I've shared about this before. It's as a manager, as an administrator, you're trying to run a program and you're trying to make it work. And it's very easy to see difficult people as enemies. Okay, well, are they enemies? Well, they're enemies to the success of the program. You know, if they won't get with it and they're high maintenance or they're causing disruptions with other people, you know, the normal stuff that people do. Uh, not all the time, thankfully, but a lot. Okay, well, it's easy to see that for what it is. And it's easy to view them as an enemy in extreme or in the near, nearer reaching places as what a pain, <laughs> right? Something like that. And so I've got friends now who are not like me in that and who are very kind and loving. And they help me to see that, Jack, you can be more like Jesus in this. You can be more loving. You can be more accepting that, yes, it's going to cost you to deal with people. They're messy and they're prickly uh, and they're sloppy and they're going to make mistakes that really hurt the program. Uh, the, the little mistakes are going to pile up and be quite a big pain sometimes. 
And sometimes the big mistakes can be exceedingly disruptive and very hard to get over. Yes, yes, yes. And your point is what, Jack? Well, this ought not to be. People ought not to be like that. Well, that's true. They ought not. But then this is part of what I'm talking about. How come so many who claim to be Christians are not overcoming these things? And so when you're in a program with them and trying to have an organization that runs off of people doing their part, uh, that's very, very difficult because it's costly when they don't perform well. And I don't mean just in the concert. I mean, are they coming on time? They're learning their music. Are they, are they easy to work with? Do they re- reply to emails when you send out an email? You know, all this. Uh, so it's just more work on the leader when they don't. Okay. Well, am I right about these things? Well, absolutely. I'm totally right. What should my view be, though? Oh, well, come on, Jack. You know what people are like. So are you just going to pout that they're not like this already? Come on. You you should expect, you should be be planning to be gracious and forgiving and plan to bear their overload if they just can't handle it. Look, I got people who can just barely handle it to come. They're so busy and they're not going to do extra. All right. And I've got people who are in different emotional states and all this and some are a little fragile. Okay. And so uh, it's very hard to work with people. However, am I right about their shortcomings? Well, yeah, I see it in play. I see it in action, like direct observation. You can see, oh, that person's not learning their parts. Oh, this person doesn't come on time. Oh, this person doesn't reply to emails. Oh, this person will never sing out. Oh, this person will never deal with the vowel sounds they make. They're not making what we're going after and what we demonstrate every week. They're making other vowel sounds that stick out. They will never deal with us, right? Okay, those are failures, every single one. And yet um, to have somebody else, and see, I'm very good at seeing those problems. That's my job. And in fact, the, the way one guy put it, a teacher had told him uh, something like this um, in a band or in chorus, you are responsible for every sound that you put out into the room. So the quality of every sound, every vowel sound, every the intonation of it, the um, you know the richness of the sound, the the timbre, as they say, uh, you're responsible for all of that. Well, yeah, that's true. That's how it is in the church too. That's how it is down at the Lions Club. That's how it is in the classroom at school. We are responsible for what we do, for what we put out into the room, whether it's sound or ideas or our behavior. Yeah. So why is it so hard to get Christians to get serious about being conformed to the likeness, to the image of God's Son? Because I see a lot of churches trying not to pay attention to that. Maybe they call really heavy on grace, 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 grace. Well, okay. But that grace had an effect for Paul. It taught him to say no to ungodliness. And it also taught him to work harder. And those two things right there, oh boy, could I get you to respond to emails? Because, you know, that's kind of lazy and and nobody says that laziness is godly. So, okay. So could you (laughs) respond to an email? Um, Could you pay attention to the vowel sound you're singing because we're going for ah and you're singing uh. And 
We've mentioned it 20 times. Could you maybe get with the program and change the shape of your mouth when you're singing this thing, right? And yeah, this is a practical example, but is it really any different from the one in your Bible group who will not learn the lesson? Really? I think that um, the churches are enslaved in fear. And this is a huge problem. I mean, really, is your church typified by people growing and learning and overcoming all the time? You know, do you have good news sharing where people say, oh, man, you know, I lost another 30 pounds in the last three months or something? Is this typical? Is this like every week somebody's overcoming the, our, our obese culture in which we live? Is there's always somebody sharing, hey, hey, I was studying the the Bible topic of, you know, X, and I learned this, and I had been wrong forever and had been taught wrong growing up, but I learned here's the right thing, and wow, isn't this great? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's great. Is this typical? Are you hearing this kind of thing every week where they're overcoming and they're learning? Are you hearing people say, oh, man, I've got such great help from my friend uh, in being patient with people? And uh, they're great at it. I'm not. And it's been uh, really hard work for me, but I'm getting better at being patient. This should typify a Christian fellowship. If not, why not? Why should that not be how it's supposed to be? So we could go troubleshoot this. We could say, okay, um, and, and there's different options here. And I'm not saying any of these is the right one. We could say, ah, uh, well, there's no spirit anymore. There's no inner in, indwelling anymore. Sure, it used to be that was 2,000 years ago. It's not happening today. Okay, well, we could explore that. Or again, the other group that says, well, there was no actual indwelling of a being, a spirit form. It was simply the philosophy of God, like the Word of God, and they were all taught this, and so this philosophy in their minds, this is what interceded for them. I'm like, mm, okay, I sort of get that, but the language seems really, really active language, this interceding. That does not, you don't normally talk about a book interceding in somebody's life or interceding between them and God. So that doesn't really fit unless, boy, these translations are kind of twisted or something like that. But okay, we could look at that. Or you could say, well, look, the reason that uh, people are so scared today is they're not really Christians. And this is a very popular way of thinking about things, uh, especially for groups that are not your group. Well, it's clear to see the reason they're failing in this. They're not even Christians. It's like, okay, well, what's your group failing in? I'll bet we could come up with something. And then we could stand back and we could point a finger and say, they're not really Christians either, right? And that's the game. Is that game really helping anybody? Mm, not sure. There are people who will say, well, uh, yeah, there may be problems with Christianity, but not in my camp. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> will you send us the name and address of your congregation so we can come see? It's like Hermione Granger. Let's see then. You know, and then Ron does his little... Uh, um, uh, spell there and the, whatever thing he's trying to change something. It doesn't work well. And she says, 
not very good, is it? <laughs> so, well, yeah, if we could actually, if we weren't so afraid, if we could say, well, yeah, I'll show you what I can do. And then you can see, you know, what you think of it. Well, most people aren't going to do that. They're, they don't want to show because what if it does fail? They don't want to learn the right way to do it. They just don't want to, don't go there. Don't go there. Please don't talk about this, right? Because they're scared. They are slaves to fear. And so what is it? What is wrong? How come so many Christians are so scared about so many things and are doing almost nothing to overcome? If you think that, oh, no, they're, they're actually overcoming quite a lot. Well, I've heard people say that, and yet uh, some from fellowships that I know, I'm like, no, nah, that group is not overcoming. They're still caught in a lot of quagmires over various topics. They're not overcoming. They're trying to live at peace with the failure rather than to overcome the failure and leave it behind. Right? So this is my question for you today. I hope you find this kind of aggravating. <laughs> I hope it really bothers you. I hope you can't sleep. I hope you cannot be content to hear the same old slathering of grace talk, grace talk without solving problems because grace works hard and it solves problems and it says no to ungodliness. That's what Paul's grace said. You may have some other kind that lets you know we're okay no matter what we do. Uh, how we behave doesn't really matter. Sure, we can feel ashamed about it, but it's okay. It's all good. It's totally forgiven. You know, God, there's we're not accountable for that. No. Well, hmm, that might be an attractive way to think about it, but there's just too many passages I have to ignore. Like, uh, for instance, the one about that how uh, each one of us must face the judgment seat. Or will be judged by what we've done while in the body, whether good or bad. See, a lot of Christians are like, no, Christians won't be judged for their bad, only for the good. And then it's only for the good Jesus did and not what we ourselves did, because, you know, that would be living by works and trying to earn your salvation by works anyway. And that's work salvation and that's heresy. It's like, okay, time out. Why don't you let the Bible talk and just hush with all this blah, 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 right? You have to. You have to twist the story, reframe it. You can't let the Bible talk for a second without having to jump in and, and explain it away, what it says. Because they would be judged by what they'd done in the flesh, whether good or bad. So how can you come out of that with this story where every Christian is judged in the affirmative by God and gets to have eternal life? And where there's no one that would fit that category where Jesus said, like, uh, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, uh, didn't we do this, that, and the other thing for you? And I will tell them, get away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Right? And, of course, somebody always wants to say, well, those people weren't Christians in the first place. Okay. So what about all the talk about falling away? Did not Jesus predict there would be a great falling away in that very generation? Well, they weren't Christians in the first place. Okay, have you told that to Jesus? Because he seemed to think they had made the commitment and weren't living it out. What's up with this parable about a fellow began to build a house and was not able to finish? He didn't count the cost. What's that about? <laughs> well, he wasn't a Christian in the first place. Okay, somebody needs to tell that to Jesus. You see, 
So we twist the gospel to try to make sense of it. But when you start examining these twisted versions, they don't really make much sense. There is a yoke and there is a burden. It is easy. The yoke is built to fit human beings. It's a doable thing. It's manageable. But there is a burden to be born and it must be born. And those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So this is the whole Bible. This is getting getting our understanding from from all the text. So why are Christians so afraid? Well, oh boy, that's a real question. And that's an important question. I believe it may be one of the most important questions that face us because I just don't see this group of overcomers. Nope. I do see some really bright spots among the dullness. Yes, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, people like that help me to change, and I'm very thankful for that. And I hope I'm like that for somebody else, at least in some ways, even though I'm so yet imperfect in other ways. Uh, but this spirit of overcoming, uh, enduring to the end and overcoming, mm, that is very rare indeed. <laughs> this is a problem. So I hope I have uh, posted the uh, posed the question well for you. Uh, who can explain the fear? Because we need some explanation of this that is honest and rational and responsible. And I don't ever hear it explained that way. Well, they're not doing it right. They're not really Christians. Or, oh no, we're not really supposed to overcome anything. We're supposed to fail like all the time. You know, we live in a fallen world. It's like, hmm. Well, how come you say you have an indwelling spirit that's supposed to make a difference and really set you apart and mark you for later as, as you know, guaranteeing your uh, adoption as sons and all this. Okay, look, either you've got it or you're not got it. Either it's effective or it's not. Either you're becoming like Jesus or you're not. And so what I'm going to say is that the Christian fellowships I know of are not typified by people regularly becoming more and more like Jesus. Is there some growth? Sure. Is there a lot of areas? Are there, are there a lot of areas that remain unchanged? Yes, there are. And they're very serious. And so how come the spirit that Paul represents here, the philosophy, the outlook on life, the worldview, how come it is way more with uh, stronger and more active and more overcoming and more learning and growing and changing and repenting and none afraid than is the typical church culture of today. That's the question that's yours to struggle with. I'd love to talk about it more. I want to study it more. I think I kind of know. Uh, I think that a lot of the churches simply twisted the gospel into something that Paul never would have put up with. And Jesus, of course. I think that's a lot of what it is. Where they don't want to teach this chapter, really. Because then they'd have to overcome. Because there's no excuse for it. I mean, really, if Second Corinthians 5.10 is right and after life, you do go face God and have a one-on-one -on -one meeting and he judges you based on what you've done. How are you going to talk your way out of that? 
Well, Lord, the, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus covered me. The blood of Jesus covered all my sins. Okay, but I want to talk about the bad you did. Uh, well, what do you mean? I, it, I just told you. <laughs> the blood of Jesus covered all my sins. Well, what if he points out the passage that says that it was the sins committed beforehand that were forgiven? What if he tells you you were still accountable for how you lived after that? Right? This is a huge philosophical disagreement among the Christian camps. Some uh, believe, yes, you're accountable for how you live. Others believe, oh, no, it's all covered, totally forgiven in advance. No problem. Live however you want. And then later, if we can't find a way to justify that, we'll just say, well, you were never really saved. <laughs> right? It's just such a, a cheat, a logical cheat. And yet that's a way of life for a lot of people and how they look at this stuff. So uh, we're talking here about accountability, and I do think that's one of the things that a lot of people are exceedingly afraid of, being accountable, having their sins shown, uh, and then having to repent of them. And this is so, you know, the beginning of John about people did not want to walk into the light for fear that their sins would be exposed. So I think what we've got here is a lot of church cultures, uh, you know, subcultures, many cultures, who are trying to save people from the full gospel where they're actually accountable right now before God and Jesus for what they do. And there's a book of life where these things are being recorded and it will be read back to you on the day when you meet God. I think that's a lot of the fear. Is there more to it than that? Oh, I'm sure there is. But I think that's a lot of it right there. The churches are teaching people wrong because the churches want to be big tent churches. Let's get a lot of people. Let's fill the seats. They, I've already covered it before, how they get into the idolatry of evangelism, where they think evangelism is the prime directive of all Christian life and get people in the seats is the thing to do. Really, even if you have to lie, cheat, and steal to get them in there, if you have to twist the gospel to get them in there and teach them a life of unaccountable uh, Christianity. Because that's what you've got. You've got people who are not wrestling with their own minds and making them conform to the scriptures. So anyway, I think I could go on and on about this. Some of you would say you already have. <laughs> so um, anyway, I wanted to pose this question. If you don't like my answer to it, I sure wish you'd shoot me another one. And tell me what's right and demonstrate it from the scriptures. I don't expect to get a peep back from anybody because this is how you roll. This is how most Christians are conditioned. Oh, you don't have to respond to that. No, that doesn't deserve an answer, right? And even that is part of the training we get from the churches. And, of course, it makes a lot of sense. If you don't want to really be accountable as a church, then fine, you learn how to ignore lots of things and put them off. Well, I'm, I'm going to reply to him later. It's just I've got more important things to do right now. i got to make cookies for the Bible group, right? Or I don't have time. I have to, I have to say my prayers or, you know, whatever. Like, okay, well, maybe eventually you get convicted that, you know, I really need to be intellectually honest and deal with some of these hard questions. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining in.